Today's sermon comes from Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Stephen Fry, he's an English actor and comedian who's also a committed atheist. And he was asked by an interviewer uh, what he would say to God upon death. And this is what he said. I'd say bone cancer in children, what's that about? How dare you create a world to which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I would say. And then the interviewer followed up with a question and said, quite provocative, And you think that's going to get you in like that? And this is what he said, and only fueled his fervor. But I wouldn't want to, Fry insisted. I wouldn't want to get in on his terms. They are wrong. Now, if I died, and it was Pluto, Hades, and if it was the 12 Greek gods, then I would have more trust with it, because the Greeks didn't pretend to not be human in their appetites in their capriciousness, and in their unreasonableness. They didn't present themselves as being all-seeing, all-wise, all-kind, all-good, because the God that created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac, utter maniac, totally selfish. We have to spend our life on our knees thanking him. What kind of God would do that? The number one reason for people not believing in God is the problem of evil. 
In fact, Barna, Barna did a poll. And they asked, they said, if you could ask God only one question and you knew he would give you an answer, what would you ask? And the answer was, why is there pain and suffering in the world? So how does the crucifixion of Jesus Christ address this problem of evil? First, we're going to see that it defines evil. If you look in verses 3 to 6, you will find some very vivid descriptions of evil. In fact, verses 3 and 4, you'll see the word sorrows. That means uh, pain or anguish. The word grief means sickness or suffering. Look at verse 4, end of verse 4. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. The word stricken means to touch violently or to strike. The word smitten means to strike, to hit, to injure, to strike dead. The word afflicted means wretched or emaciated. And you go on to verse five, the word transgressions, that means a, a crime or an offense. And you pull all these words together and there you have a, a very vivid description of evil. And it's describing the life of Jesus at the crucifixion and the events that, the events that preceded it. That here are the manifest, manifestations of evil. Now, when you get to verse six, that's where you get the real true definition of evil. Because what I just read you is all of the, the manifestations of evil, pain, anguish, striking, killing, violence, starvation, emaciation, all that stuff that we would say, yes, that's evil. But when you get to verse six, Isaiah really dials in on what is the foundation of evil? What is the, the, the cause of evil, the definition of evil, the heart of evil? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. That's the definition of evil, is my way. Me first is responsible for every act of evil. From a, uh, a little toddler biting another toddler on the arm to get a toy, to a husband walking out on his marriage and his family, to someone murdering someone, or all the way up to the Holocaust and every other act of genocide. Now you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> Different levels of severity, right? From a child having a bite mark on his arm to a wife and a family being abandoned or to someone being murdered or to the Holocaust or genocide. Yes, obviously different levels of severity of how evil manifests itself. But all of those examples, the core foundation of evil in all of those examples is me first. That's, that's where it starts. And notice what verse six says. All we like sheep have gone astray. It doesn't say all we like lions have gone astray. Lions know where they're going. Sheep don't, right? Sheep need a shepherd. Psalm 100, verse three says it this way. Know that the Lord, he is God, exclamation point. The Lord, Yahweh, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. And so what we see is that the, 
that, that all of sin and evil is a result of us substituting ourselves for God. If you go back to the very beginning in the garden with Adam and Eve, right, they, they substituted themselves for God. They said, we don't need a shepherd. We're not sheep. We don't need a shepherd. We can do this on our own. We can go our own way. And that me first, right, which was the first inclination right, of sin, is out of that has flowed all the evil that we have and that you see in our world. Let, let me illustrate it this way. And this is, a, this is a tragic illustration, but I think it's very powerful about what we're talking about here. Back in 1995, Christi Christianity Today ran an, an article and uh, Bill Bennett described a, a news segment that he was watching. And it was basically about two mothers uh, in Miami, in the city of Miami, who locked their children, their very, very small children in a room so they could go out on the town for the night. The kids got out, one of them drowned, and both moms were charged with first-degree murder. And he says, after, after seeing this news segment, not, not long after that, almost immediately after that, he's watching an Oprah show, and he's watching a single mother defend her active social life and her need to have a life. And that stark reality was put before him. Now, let me just pause and say, before you get judgmental, right? And say, how could those two mothers do that? How could they lock their young children in a room and go out and party in Miami and the children get out and drown themselves? How could they do such a thing? Or the, the mother, right? The single mother that defends herself and her active social life and going out at night and leaving her child, right? Before you get judgmental and say, how could they do that? You know exactly how they did that because you know exactly what it's like to have the urge, the desire, the temptation to put your needs above your children. You know that. Right? Everyone here knows the me first attitude. We all know me firstness. We deal with it every day in our hearts and it manifests itself in different ways. Me first is the problem with the human race. And it is the problem with the world. Now, why is this so important to understand? Because it keeps you from defi defining evil in erroneous ways. And let me describe two ways that you can fall off the wagon, so to speak, in defining evil. Okay, and I'm just going to paint two very polar opposite extremes. The liberal left will say evil is not really evil. They explain it away. They recategorize sin. And it goes something like this. You, you have the freedom to be you, right? So you define truth. You define what's right and wrong. And don't tell anybody they're wrong, right? Tolerance, tolerance, tolerance. And explaining away of evil or a recategorizing of sin. Then you have the conservative right that says evil is out there. It's behavioral, it's out there, they're the problem, we're the solution. And so enemies get demonized. The Bible addresses both of those erroneous definitions of evil. And it says this, to the liberal left, it says there is sin, there is evil, and you don't get to define the terms. 
That's the problem in the first place, is a me first defining of what's right and wrong. And that leads to a whole mess of evil. And the Bible comes to the conservative right and says, no, the problem is not out there only. The problem is you. We are the problem because evil is not just behavioral, it's in the heart. And you've got a sick heart. Don't you see Isaiah 53 defines evil in such a way that keeps us from, keeps us from uh, uh, evil being something that is not really there because we define truth for ourselves on the one hand, and it keeps us from demonizing our enemies. And so the first thing that we learn from the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is what is evil? And it's me first. Second, how does the crucifixion address the problem of evil? First, it defines evil. Second, it, it bears evil. It bears evil. With great detail, Isaiah here describes the manner in which the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, would die, the, the way that he would die. We see end of chapter 52, verse 14, it says, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And then you move into chapter 53 and you've got, uh, he was wounded, he was crushed, like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. He has put him to grief, which literally means he's made him sick. And of course, on this side of the cross, we see how accurate those definitions and descriptions are. Because the crucifixion was the most inhumane, deplorable way that someone could die. In fact, let me just read you a couple comments about it. It was reserved for the lowest of the low, rightless non-Roman citizens who had been sentenced to suffer a most excruciating death for their crimes. And then listen to this. As a method of execution, crucifixion was designed to humiliate and degrade as well as to kill. It was so bad that the, the Roman philosopher Cicero or Cicero, he urged Roman citizens to turn their thoughts, their ears, and their eyes from a crucifixion. It was so bad. And yet you have the apostle Paul telling us to turn our eyes towards the crucifixion. That was his boast. Why? Why? Why did Jesus have to die the way he did? Have you ever thought about that question? I mean, why couldn't it just have been lethal injection? Quick, painless death or a, or a spear right through the heart that just dropped him like that, painless. Why the torture? Many have asked, what kind of religion or faith chooses an instrument of torture as its symbol? And there's one answer the one that takes suffering seriously. You see, wrapped up in the crucifixion was all that is wrong with the human race. You've got the human pride of the Roman Empire. You've got the awful human cruelty all wrapped up in the crucifixion that Jesus Christ bore because he takes suffering seriously. You know, many would ask, why... 
it's the age-old question, why is there evil? Now, the cross does not answer the why. But what it does answer is this. It rejects the idea that God doesn't care and that God is some mean-minded God that gets a kick out of watching people suffer. It smashes that because it says God cares so much about your suffering and so much about the evil of this world that he would take it upon himself in Jesus Christ. That's how much he cares, that Jesus Christ bore evil. All the descriptions we looked at were describing Jesus. He bore that evil. John Stott says it this way in his book, The Cross of Christ. The cross does not solve the problem of suffering, meaning the why? Why is there evil? Why is there suffering? But it supplies the essential perspective from which to look at it. Sometimes we picture God lounging, perhaps dozing in some celestial deck chair while the hungry millions starve to death. It is this terrible caricature of God which the cross smashes to smithereens. Jesus takes your suffering and the evil of this world so seriously that he would take it on himself and experience the excruciating, painful, inhumane, deplorable suffering that he did on the cross. That's how much he cares. Now, that's not it, right? The cross is not just uh, Jesus being able to sympathize with your suffering, that he suffers as you suffer. That's true, but that's not it. There's more to it. Jesus actually accomplished something on the cross. Something definite was accomplished. Look at verse one of chapter 53. Isaiah says, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What is Isaiah saying there? First of all, he's saying this, the solution I'm about to give you for the problem of this world and for the evil and the suffering and the sin of this world, you're not gonna believe. You're not gonna believe it. Right? A man suffering inhumanely and deplorably on a cross to solve the problem of this world, you're not gonna believe it. But second, look what he says. The arm of the Lord will do it. The arm of the Lord. That's a phrase that describes when the Lord comes down into human history and does something concrete, like parting the Red Sea. Right? That was the arm of the Lord, God entering human history and doing something concrete. And Isaiah says something concrete is gonna happen here from the arm of the Lord. What is it? What did he accomplish on the cross? Look at verse eight. It says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Verse 11, he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12, he bore the sin of many. You see, Jesus bore the judgment for evil and for sin on the cross. He bore the judgment. All of the sin and evil of God's people through the ages around the entire world and entire history was bottled up in that one moment, all coming down, concentrated in that one moment and put onto Jesus. And God's wrath, just wrath, was poured out on it. And so Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God in your place. He bore it. He satisfied the wrath of God. He exhausted it because he took it on himself. And that's why the cross is not exemplary. 
Let me explain that. And I've, I've heard this a lot. The cross of Jesus Christ, the, the point of it, the moral of the cross is now go live like that and love people sacrificially. Right? Go, go love your spouse sacrificially. The, the cross isn't exemplary. No, it, it accomplished something. If the cross were just an example, it'd be like any other world religion. Right? Go love sacrificially. That, that fits with any religion. No, what distinguishes Christianity is this arm of the Lord, this armness of Jesus, that he accomplished something, that he took the sin and evil of the world and, he, and he, it was concentrated and he took it upon himself. He absorbed it so that he could put it to death. He actually accomplished something on the cross. Let me say it a few different ways. Jesus didn't come to tell you what to do. He came to do it. Or let me say it this way. Other religions say, I'm going to show you how to connect to God. Go do this. Jesus says, I'm going to connect you to God. I've done this. Or let me say it a different way. The gospel, which is all encapsulated in Jesus' death and resurrection. The gospel is news, not advice. It's not advice. It's, it's, Jesus didn't say, here's how you can change your life. Jesus says, here's the news that will change your life. You see the difference? That he actually came into the course of human history, took the evil and sin in your heart and in the world upon himself, bore judgment for it, and put it to death. Then he accomplished something. Let, let, me, let me try to illustrate it. Imagine you're in downtown Jacksonville on one of the tallest buildings in downtown Jacksonville. And you're walking around on this building and somebody else is walking on the building top as well. And at some point, they make eye contact with you and they jump off the building and they look at you and they say, I love you. Look how much I love you. Now go do the same. And they plunge to their death. How would you respond to that? You'd say, yes, thank you. You'd say, that's crazy. That person's crazy. I don't feel loved. Nor do I feel taught how to go love. Now let me change it up. You're on the same building, you're walking around. Somebody else is walking around that building. You trip and stumble and start to fall off the building. And that person jumps and shoves you back on the building and plunges to their death. Now, how, you, how would you respond to that? With overwhelming humility and gratitude because that person died to save your life. See, the cross isn't exemplary. It's not an example. Jesus died for you. He took your sin, your me-firstness, your evil, the evil of this world, and he absorbed it and put it to death for you. He accomplished something. And this leads us to our last point. The crucifixion bears evil. It defines evil. And finally, it defeats evil. 
The crucifixion of Jesus Christ defeats evil. Look at verse 10. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Now understand what that verse is saying. That the inhumane, deplorable, excruciating, tortuous death that Jesus died birthed something new. That's what offspring means. That it birthed something. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says it this way, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, meaning that you've trusted what Christ has done on your behalf, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. That when Jesus died on the cross, and if you have trusted that he did that for you in your place, substitution, that if you believe that, it says, the Bible says, you're a brand new person. You're not just a better person. Not just a, a better, improved version of your old sinful self. That now you make better decisions. That now you love people better. That you're just this kind of moral upgrade. That's not what it says. That when you trust Jesus, that you become a brand new person. You're recreated. And of course, as a recreated person, now you start to do things differently. But the key is you're, you're recreated. You're brand new. And so what this means is that what happens at salvation or conversion, fundamentally, and I'm gonna tie back to the definition of evil, is that there is a change that you move from being me first, your life for mine, to you first, my life for yours. That's the fundamental change that happens at salvation. And when it says you're a new creation, that's the new creation that you now have in you the power and the capability to be about you first, my life for yours. Of course, you still have sin and that gets worked out. You're not perfect. But that's the fundamental change that happens as you begin to live your life for others. So now you ask the question, if, if Jesus' crucifixion on the cross defeated sin and evil, then why is there still suffering and evil in the world, right? I mean, it's the obvious question. Keith, you're saying 2,000 years ago, the scriptures say that he defeated evil. Why is it still around? Look at verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Isaiah is using battle imagery there. He's describing a king that goes into a foreign nation, conquers it, defeats it, takes all the valuables, the spoils, and distributes it to his people. And what he's saying is that Jesus Christ, upon death and resurrection, defeats Satan. In Ephesians 4, Paul talks about this, ascends to be at the right hand of God and takes gifts and gives it to his people so that through the church, he accomplishes 
this victory. Now, let me give you an example of this. 2003, when, when we invaded Iraq, and now let me just say, I, I'm not making any political statements here. I'm not weighing in on whether that was a good war or not. But there's something that happened that was, is a beautiful picture of, or a powerful picture of what happened on the cross. When the U.S. forces and the combined forces went into Iraq and they got to Baghdad, if you remember, they conquered Baghdad, which was Saddam Hussein's command central. And if you're old enough, you remember that imagery where they, there was that massive statue of Saddam Hussein, this evil dictator, right in the heart of Baghdad. And they went in there and they tied a rope to the top of it and they pulled it down. That was the sign of defeat. Now, was the war over? No, there were still battles to fight. That victory that had been secured and realized in the capital city, right? had to be realized in all the towns and villages around Iraq. In the same way, or in a similar way, when, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose from the dead, Satan was defeated. Command Central was taken down. But the victory needs to be realized throughout the world, the towns, the villages, the neighborhoods throughout the world. And how does Jesus do this? Ephesians 4, he gives gifts, spiritual gifts to his people, to the church, so that this new kingdom that Jesus ushered in can be planted in the various towns and villages and neighborhoods of this world. So what, what does this mean? It means that the church is not to hunker down and build a bunker to shield itself from the darkness and the forces of evil. And you say, Keith, but what about our culture that seems to be going downhill? And I would say, welcome to, not even quite, but welcome to the first century in the Roman Empire. And not even near that. But the church in the first century flourished under opposition, flourished under a Roman empire that was absolutely opposed to it. It flourished because the battle has been won. The victory is sure. And so Jesus says to the church, go. Matthew 28, he says, go. Go and make disciples. Go, go, go. Don't hunker down, go. Yeah, it's fearful. Look at Acts, uh, the first six chapters of Acts. The church is 120 people in Acts chapter one. That was the size of the church. Acts two, it's 3,000. By Acts six, they're still hunkered down in Jerusalem. So what does God do? He sends persecution. The martyrdom of Stephen to scatter them across the, the, the world, the nations, because it was God's intent to take the gospel of the nations and, and not to, in fear, hunker down. So God says, Go. Jesus says, go, go to your neighbor, go down the street, go one cubicle over in your office, go, go. Plant the kingdom of God. Plant the kingdom of God around you. That is one of the reasons why we are so committed to planting and multiplying here at Christ Church East. And we get that question a lot. Why we're committed to planting new congregations, why we're plant, committed to planting new community groups. And for us, that's, it's the same thing. It's on a smaller scale. And the planting of community groups eventually plants a new congregation. 
The reason why is because Jesus says go and we're trying to be faithful and it comes at a cost. Yes, it comes at a cost. Mission has always come at a cost throughout the, the story of the Bible. It's one of the things that's it's hard about living in the West, specifically the United States, where there's no persecution, relatively speaking. And, it's a, and there's comfort and there's some degree of affluence and there's, there's ease is that we get into this picture of, I'm supposed to go on mission, but if, it, if it's painful, that's gotta be wrong. I'm supposed to go on mission, but if it costs me something, I'm, that can't be right. That's the culture that we live in speaking into you. God says, no, I never promised it'd be easy. I never promised it'd be painless. I never promised it wouldn't cost you dearly. No, that's actually, that's part of it. So go, yes, it'll cost you. I still remember Sandy Wilson did our missions conference uh, several years ago. And he asked a question and I will, I will leave you with this question. And that is, is your life your best answer to the Great Commission? Where Jesus says, go and make disciples. Is your life your best answer to Jesus' great commission. And I would ask that as Christ Church East. Is the life of Christ Church East our best answer to the great commission? Let's pray. Father, everyone in this room is familiar with evil and pain and suffering. We've seen it. We've experienced it. We watched the six o'clock news. And yet I would pray and we would pray boldly that you would keep us from fear, that you would remind us of what the cross has accomplished that you define evil, that, that Jesus, you've borne it on your back, that you've defeated it. And so there is nothing to fear. Father, I pray for those in this room who maybe have always seen the cross as an example of how to go love people better. And I pray this morning that you would convince them that it is not an example, that it is a man, the God-man Jesus Christ, who went to the cross and died in their place. Father, we pray that you would draw those people to yourself and that they would see the cross as done for them and the love of a father that would put his son in their place. And Father, as a church, would you capture our hearts around mission, that evil has been defeated, that Jesus has won the battle, and that that's why, Jesus, you call us to go. All authority in your presence given to us to go. Pray we would be faithful as a church to do that in our neighborhoods, in our, in our workplaces. And as we continue to plan to, to plant new congregations and to plant new community groups, that you would raise up people in our midst that would say, yes, send me. Oh, it'll be costly. Yes, I'll miss my friends. 
but send me, Jesus. Send me. Because I know you defeated evil and this victory needs to be realized in the neighborhoods, in the, in the villages, in the towns across this city and world. Fathers, we close in worship. We close in hearts of gratitude for what you've done to defeat evil and the hope that that gives us. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.